Well, I've mentioned this several times uh, in other messages that one of the metaphors, I think, for life that people have is the, the idea of journey or pilgrimage, and it, it, particularly in the Christian kind of forming of, of, of the Christian worldview. Pilgrimage or journey is a common metaphor. The 19th century folk song, Wayfaring, Poor Wayfaring Stranger, picks up this metaphor nicely. And here's the first, uh, the first verse. I'm just a poor wayfaring stranger. I'm traveling through this world of woe. Yet there's no sickness, toil, nor danger in that bright land to which I go. I'm going there to see my father. I'm going there no more to Rome. I'm just a going over Jordan. I'm just a going over home. By the way, if you like vocal harmonies, the group Anonymous 4 is a female quartet. They nail this song. I'm just saying it's on, you, it's on iTunes. So. Uh, <clears throat> I share this verse from Poor Wayfaring Stranger because it picks up nicely on this image or metaphor of journey, of pilgrimage. And I like it because it, it has the idea of journey in the right direction. What I mean by that is you notice in the song, people aren't leaving home to go to some other distant land. The idea is that we are not really home and that the, the wayfaring stranger is going on a journey to home. And that true home is with the Father. One way of thinking about being human, just any human being, might be to say that we, as a human race, are ever looking for true home. In fact, one of the greatest ingrained needs we have, and you can see this at a very young age as children start picking little groups to hang out with and things like that, one of the most innate things that we have in our nature is the need to fit, to belong, to have a home. We all have layers in our lives where we try and meet that need. And some of those layers are formal. So, for example, uh, we have friendships that we hang around with people who have like interests that we do. And that helps us have an aspect of home or belonging. Uh, we join clubs, like maybe you're in a theater group or a, a music group or a gaming group. I know there's more of those coming up. Or a Bible study group. Some, something on a regular basis where you meet with a group of people. Um, it helps you feel more connected, more at home. Uh, we're part of informal groups like sports fans who maybe don't talk to each other all the time. But if you've ever gone to a Sounders game and done the march to the match from Pioneer Square, you're just in this sea of green that people all are loving the same thing for that at least couple hours in time. Uh, there's the music scene or the dog park phenomena. My brother brother lives in Seattle, has this huge dog in a condo, and he tells me about these crazy stories he has with dog park people. Dog park out there? Come on. You know that there's a whole culture of dog park people. All right. So every year in our nation, we spend billions and billions of dollars, advertisers do, trying to tell you that you don't fit in unless you look a certain way or drive a certain car or weigh a certain amount or don't weigh a certain amount. And then, every year, as consumers, we spend billions and billions of dollars buying the product or the car or the thing that we think will help us fit in. Why do we have such difficulty feeling settled, at feeling completely at home in our own skin, in our own, in our own setting? Okay? And why... After generation, after generation, and year after year, why do we live as though we expected that we could ever find true home? That there would ever be a solution to this feeling out of place? I believe we don't quite feel at home 
in this world because we're not at home. And hear me clearly, I don't think we're in the wrong place. Especially, I mean, talk to me sometime about place-based theology. I think, I think we're exactly in the right place. Right? I think God's called us to love this place. I don't think we're in the wrong place physically. I think our hearts are in the wrong place. I believe we're designed to find our true home in God, in relationship with Him. Okay, now check this out. Jesus, right? I'm sure you'll agree with me with this. Unlike any man who ever lived, ever. Okay? And in John's Gospel, you see Jesus on the scene, and people are just drawn to him. Why are they drawn to Jesus? Because he's the one human being I have ever met and ever read about who is completely at home. I mean... The things you read about Jesus and the, re- and the reaction people had to him is he is a guy who is completely at home in himself and in his surroundings. So, in John's Gospel, you've got these group of people who start to follow Jesus. He turns to them, and his first words in John's Gospel, and first words are really important in the Gospels, okay? In John's Gospel, Jesus' first words, he turns to the crowd, what are you seeking? And somebody, I don't know who, steps up from this crowd and says... Master, where are you abiding? Where are you living? And at first you might think, he wants to know Jesus' address. He wants to come over or something. But what happens in the Gospel of John is chapter after chapter, layers get unfolded, and you realize the whole book is answering that question. Where are you abiding? Jesus is abiding in the Father, in God. And that's why he is is so at home. If Jesus had a passport, it would not say earth, it would not say Israel, it would not even say heaven. I believe it would say, my citizenship is with the, with the Father and with the Spirit. And another way of saying that is, my citizenship is the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God. That's how Jesus talks about home in the synoptic gospels. The synoptic gospels are Matthew, Mark, and Luke. The kingdom of God is the home that the people of Israel were waiting for. Oh, they were waiting for home to come. They expected a time when God would come and dwell among his people. They imagined an age, not when they would go home somewhere else, but when home would come to them, when God, the Father, would come make his dwelling with them. A time also when evil would be judged and righteousness would be exalted. That sounds like a good day, right? That's kind of what we want. Home, if God would come and make his dwelling among us. So, for the last while now, our church has been rooted in Matthew's gospel. And so far, we have seen Jesus do these things. We've seen Jesus proclaiming the good news that home has come. That the kingdom of God has come. And we've seen uh, this kingdom breaking into our world because Jesus has been doing things of the kingdom. He's been casting out evil spirits. And he's been bringing people who are on the margins of society into reconciled relationship. And he's been healing deep wounds, emotional wounds, and physical wounds. And from time to time he even raises some people from the dead. That's home That's kingdom breaking into our lives. On top of all of that, Jesus is also gathering a new community of God 
around himself. That would be the disciples and that would be you and me. So Jesus has been proclaiming the arrival of the kingdom through his deeds and his words and through direct confrontation with the powers that that be at his time. And Jesus has good news for us that the kingdom or home is among us. That home is not far off. And he called his first hearers and he calls you and I to repent and believe in the good news. Amen? That's that's the gospel right there. Okay, we can go home. No, just kidding. Okay. So one of the ways that Jesus gets his point across, besides just doing amazing deeds and saying amazing words, is he teaches through parables. And as I've been saying in our series in the parables, Jesus, his parables are there to cause us to make a decision. They're not just information, all right? They're not just information about the kingdom of God. They're there to present the kingdom of God and have us make a decision about it. So far, we've looked at the parable of the soils in which the sower sowed seed all over the land. And there we learned that Jesus is alluding to two Old Testament prophecies, one Isaiah 6, one Isaiah 55, in which it was prophesied that when God came, he would sow seeds of life, seeds of the kingdom of God. And so in that parable, Jesus is telling us, hey, listen to my word. I'm proclaiming that the kingdom of uh, of heaven is come among us. He warns us that if our hearts are hard, or if we get too preoccupied with the cares of the world, or we receive the good news without actually living it out, without actually doing anything about it, we might lose our lives altogether. Last week, we looked at the parables of the mustard seed and the leaven. We learned how Jesus encourages us that, hey, even though things seem small, even though it seems like the kingdom isn't doing much, Don't despise small beginnings, because these small beginnings are power-packed. When the kingdom comes in full, oh man, you will know it. Hang in there. This week, we're going to look at the parable, often titled, The Wheat and the Tares. It's another parable about the kingdom of God, which means it's another parable about our true home. I want to invite you to stand with me as we read the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 13, I'm going to start in verse 24, and you know the parable of the mustard seed and leaven is right in the middle of this. I'm just going to read it straight through. Right? Here we go. Jesus presented another parable to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat, and then he went away. But when the wheat sprouted and bore grain, then the tares became evident also. The slaves of the landowner came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed into your field? How then does it have tares? And he said to them, An enemy has done this. The slaves said to him, Do you want us to listen then? Or do you want us then to go and gather them up? He said, No. For while you're gathering up the tares, you may uproot the the wheat with them. Allow both to grow together until the harvest. And in the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, first gather up the tares and bind them into bundles and burn them up. But gather the wheat into my barn. He presented another parable to them saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed which a man took and sowed in his field. And this is smaller than all the other seeds. But when it's full grown, it's larger than the garden plants and becomes a tree. So that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. He spoke another parable to them. 
The kingdom of heaven is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three pecks of flour until it's all leavened. And all of these things Jesus spoke to the crowds in parables, and he did not speak to them without a parable. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things hidden since the foundation of the world. Then he left the crowds and went into the house. And his disciples came to him and said, Explain the parable of the tares in the field. And he said, The one who sows the good seed is the son of man, and the field is the world. And as for the good seed, well, those are the sons of the kingdom, and the tares are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil. And the harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. So just as the tares are gathered up and burned with fire, so shall it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send forth his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all stumbling blocks and those who commit lawlessness, and will throw them into the furnace of fire. And in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then the righteous shall shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears to hear, listen. Lord Jesus, help us to listen. Lord, we confess as we read this in our context, it's difficult to understand what it is you're saying to us. So Lord, I pray that you would help me to be clear and help us to receive this good news that you have for us. Amen. You may be seated. Any wheat farmers out there? All right. Not even Wayne. Wayne's more a, a corn guy. Yeah, he, he knows a thing or two about wheat. But, yeah, I mean, that's kind of a, a problem, right? We come to this parable about wheat, and it's like, I don't know anything about wheat. What does this parable even mean? Obviously, we're quite a bit removed um, But I do want to remind us that the reason Jesus spoke in parables in the first place wasn't to confuse us. Almost everyone that he's talking to knows stuff about animal husbandry. They know stuff about growing wheat. They know stuff about birds and observing nature a lot more than we do. Okay, so so just because it's kind of weird for us doesn't mean Jesus is trying to fool people. All right, so there's that. But then there's a reality that we live in Bellingham, 21st century. I don't grow wheat Maybe you have some experience, but let me break this down. In Palestine, as with many other areas, there's this weed called a tare, or in English, darnel. In Latin, lolium temulentum. Sounds like a Harry Potter spell or something like that. But anyway, uh, it's a weed, right? And farmers hated this form of weed because what would happen is it would sprout right up alongside the wheat. And at an early age, you could hardly tell the two apart. They almost look exactly the same. And then eventually, once the wheat puts on kernels of grain, well, then you could tell the difference. The problem is by that point, the roots are intertwined. So what's the big deal? You just harvest it all together, and then you thresh it, and the wheat heads go into the good, and the tares go into, into the fire, right? Well, no, there's a problem. The problem is that these tares, or darnel, would oftentimes get a blue fungus on it. And if you were to process that stuff together, if you bring it to the threshing floor, the fungus gets off and gets on the heads of wheat and can ruin the whole crop. So you have to separate them, but you can't separate them too early or you kill the wheat. See the problem? All right. In fact, here's an interesting fact. We have these Roman documents that show how illegal it is 
for farmers. Rival farmers used to plant Darnell in their neighbors' crops sometimes. And one of these documents we have actually shows that it carries the death penalty in certain regions. So this is a serious deal, and it actually happened from time to time. It's not that far-fetched. So what's going on? The kingdom of God is being compared to a landowner who sowed good seed in his field. And while the workers were sleeping, which, by the way, don't read into that. People sleep at night. It's what we do. So there's no, no problem with the workers. But while they're sleeping, an enemy comes and spreads tares into the field of the landowner. Of the landowner. The parable skips a few weeks chronologically, but by the next line we learn that the wheat has grown up. The workers see that, oh my goodness, there's tares in this wheat. What do we do? Why has this happened? How has this happened? Didn't you sow good seed into the field, landowner? Yeah, I did, um, but I know what happened. An enemy, my enemy, has done this. So, of course, these zealous servants who are eager to help the master. Should we go pull it up, Lord, master? No, you shouldn't do that. Because in so doing, you might pull up the good stuff at the same time. Instead, wait until the harvest, and then the tares will be bundled and burned, and then the wheat will be gathered and put into my barn. Okay. If your wheels are churning, and especially from the scripture reading that Elizabeth did, we see how John the Baptist, who was the prophet, I mean, this guy, Jesus says he's, above, he's higher than all the other prophets who came before him. He is thinking that when the kingdom comes... Judgment is coming at the exact same time. That when the king comes, it's going to be justice. And that means all those tares are going to be gathered and burned up. It's why we have parables like the mustard seed and leaven that explain and, and encourage us that just because the kingdom is beginning to break in doesn't mean it's the end yet. Okay? So Jesus has come and the kingdom is beginning to break in. But through this parable we see it's not yet time to pull all the tares up. And we'll get to that in a little bit. The bigger question is, what do we do with this parable? Right? Um, even if we were first century wheat farmers, the parable's kind of weird and cryptic on the surface. We could go all kinds of rabbit trails and assign meanings to all of these symbols and people in the story. At this point, we know that it's a parable. It's about the kingdom of heaven, our true home. That's what we know. And we know that Jesus taught in parables so that people would come to make a decision about him and his kingdom. And so what we need to do is decide upon the result of this parable. Thankfully, we have two very important helps. Are you ready? First, we have some encouragement. And we learn in verses 34 and 35 that Jesus is not trying to confuse us. He's not trying to trick us. He's, he's trying to reveal a deep mystery from the beginning of the world. When God decided to make the world, he had a plan. And Jesus is revealing that through these parables. That's cool. Okay. So he's trying to tell us something we can understand. Second, he gives an explanation. Oh, you don't know how much easier that makes my job. Uh, that's pretty cool. So he gives us an explanation so I don't have to invent stuff. Here we go. We're going to read his explanation. We learn, first of all, that the sower, this landowner, is none other than Jesus himself. And one of Jesus' self-proclaimed titles is the Son of Man. 
Now that's problematic. <laughs> there are entire volumes of books on the phrase son of man. If you take an exegesis class in Bible school or something like that, a, a, a class on Bible interpretation, your teacher will probably give you an assignment on, hey, look up the meaning of son of man, just to, just to show you how hard of the statement that is. But the one cool thing about son of man, yes, it's very nuanced and there's lots to it. It's also quite general. And that is, it's, a, it's an allusion to the book of Daniel. Listen to this. Daniel has this vision of the future in which, the, in which God the Father would give the Son of Man a kingdom. And this is how it describes that kingdom. He's going to give the Son of Man dominion, glory, a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and people of every language might serve him. His dominion is everlasting dominion which will not pass away and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. Okay, so Jesus is saying the landowner, the guy who's sowing the seed is this son of man who's the one who's there to receive the kingdom from the father. All right. The sower, the son of man, the king of our true home. So the parable begins with the son of man sowing his seed. Home is being planted and our true God has come near. In the parable of the sower, the seed is the word of God about the kingdom. He's spreading the good news, right? In the parable of the mustard seed and the leaven, the kingdom is about the process between the small start of the mustard seed and the large result. In the parable of the wheat and the tares, the seed, the good seed, represents the sons and daughters of the kingdom. Those who receive the good news and follow Jesus the king. The field, Jesus says, is the synagogue. The field, Jesus says, is the church. What is the field? The world. The world, the field to which Jesus is sowing the seed, the sons and daughters of the kingdom of God, true home, is the entire world. Deb Gustafson from our Wednesday night group had a great insight Wednesday, and uh, she said the fact that the landowner is Jesus, and that he planted the good seed in the field, and the field is his world, means that Jesus is Lord over the world, over everything that's going on. And that's encouraging. So the field, the whole world belongs to Jesus and he plants good seed throughout it. Not just in the synagogue, not just in the church, but throughout the world. But another comes along, an enemy of the landowner. And he's called the devil or the evil one. And he plants tares among the wheat. These tares are described in two ways. As stumbling blocks, people who are stumbling blocks. And people who are lawless or commit lawlessness. Stumbling blocks in Greek, panta ta skandala. All the scandals. Scandala is actually a noun that he assigns to individual people. All the scandals. Literally, those who cause people to stumble, to trip up people, especially in terms of someone's faith or their moral life. These are the people in power over others who prevent them from believing in Jesus. And just so you go, don't go, whew, well, that's not me. It is you. You and I, every one of us has power. Every one of us has influence because people are watching our lives. Do our lives sing a good song about Jesus? 
And you may think, well, I don't have kids. But if you're a part of this church, you have kids. Because my kids and the other kids are watching you. And every time they are watching you and I, they are picking up on either growing towards faithfulness in Jesus or declining in faithfulness toward Jesus. None of us, not kids, not the oldest, more mature person here, is ever in neutral. Don't fool yourself into thinking you can ever be in neutral. We're always being formed or deformed. And every one of us carries power of influence. In all of our relationships with the people in your life, want to worship the Jesus you proclaim based on watching your life. Scandals are those university professors who see it as sport to derail freshman Christians, which, by the way, is why it doesn't do us any good to shelter our kids from tough questions, all right? Present the tough questions now in in good, healthy community, and they won't be blown out of the water that first year at university. (laughs) And... The, the, the tares are those who commit lawlessness. This isn't necessarily um, those who drive too fast, although, okay, I'm guilty of that sometimes. It's more specifically those who break the law of God. And but that could be a whole other sermon, but let's just break it down simply. What is the law of God? To love the Lord God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. To love our neighbor as ourselves. That's the law of God. And very specifically, too, um, when Jesus in, in John chapter 6 is talking to this crowd, somebody comes up to him and says, Lord, what, what, what must we do to work the works of God? What are the works of God? So this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. The law of God, the work of God is to believe in Jesus, the one who the Father has sent. Lawlessness is to not believe and to drag others down with you. So, the parable agrees with the rest of Scripture that there will be an end of the age, a that day, a judgment day. And on that day, angels will be like reapers who come down at the command of the landowner. They're going to gather up the tares to be burned in judgment, and the wheat will be gathered at the master's barn. The sons and daughters of the evil one, those who reject Jesus, will be judged. Now, listen to me here. This parable is not trying to give us a detailed theology on hell. Right? The idea of fire as judgment is a metaphor used by Jesus. So it goes all over the Old Testament. Jesus is picking up on things that have been said time and time again. For example, 2 Samuel 23, 1-7. It's a prophecy by King David. And by the way, Jesus comes out of that line of David, right? So it's a prophecy by King David about um, those who oppose the work of God being judged with fire, being burned up. Fire is a symbol throughout Scripture of judgment and refinement. However you take that, the meaning is clear. You want to be wheat. You don't want to be a tear. Why is it like this? If the world belongs to Jesus, why is there evil? Why does he allow it? Well, the parable doesn't really give us detailed answers about that. But we know these two things at least. One, Jesus sows good seed. He does not sow evil seed. He does not cause the tares. Two, 
The evil one sows the tares. He sows evil ideas, plants doubts, stokes the fire of human pride, encourages our self-sufficiency apart from Jesus. The evil one loves to divide, loves to cause factions, loves to isolate us into our own little addictions and corners of despair. He loves it when we give up. The evil one is real and personal. He's not just this ethereal feeling of evil. Jesus believed in the devil. The early apostles believed in the evil one. Christians throughout history have known the evil one to be real. And we would be wise to take the evil one seriously too, although not too seriously to where we're always freaking out. Jesus is victorious. Which brings us to three. Jesus has ultimately defeated the evil one. He will judge him in the end. Jesus defeated death itself, which means that those of us who place our faith in him will be rescued no matter what the tares can do to us now. All right? Amen? It's good news. Now, stick with me. What people must have thought is probably what we're inclined to think. If Jesus is the king of the kingdom and he's come in the flesh, what on earth is he waiting for? John the Baptist obviously expected him to do more. When he's in prison, is this it? Are you the one or should we look for somebody else? What is Jesus waiting for? Why isn't he bringing the end now? Why isn't he destroying these tares, these people infected by evil, these opposers of the gospel? I'll tell you why, I think. Because of his far-reaching Radical, undeterred, relentless grace. Why doesn't he come and burn up all those tears, all those people now? Because he's holding out hope that they will turn. Because if he had done that 20 years ago, I'd have been burned up. Any other former tears out there? Have you been around long enough to receive the mercy and grace of Jesus? Are there still people in your life, in your circle, in your family, who you long to know the love and the grace and the mercy of Jesus to become wheat? I do. I do. I'm glad. I'm glad in Jesus' timing because there's still people I'm holding out hope for. Don't give up hope. Let me tell you something else about this message. This is good news for those of us who have suffered real injustice. This is good news for those who have been horribly wronged by some tears. There will be a reckoning. There will be. God is just. He's just also so gracious and merciful. Be thankful for this time that we have. In the meantime, church, how should we live? How should we live? Should we be about the business of uprooting tares? Jesus says no. And he says it's his job. It says that in the end, when he's ready, he's going to send angels. They're going to be the reapers, not people. And they're going to separate the wheat uh, and the tares. Why doesn't he want us to do it? Gosh, a lot of us love being judgmental, don't we? I'll tell you why. Because we would screw it up. 
we would get it wrong. We are too quick to judge, way too quick. After all, it was religious people, the people of God who crucified Jesus in the name of zealous longing to do the right thing for God. It was the early church, read Acts, read Acts 21. It was the early church, our Christian forefathers, who would have strung up Paul any minute they could have. They thought Paul bringing the gospel to Gentiles like me was thought to be way in left field. They thought he was a tear among wheat. Who is this man that doesn't even make people become Jewish before they become Christian? That wasn't the way you did things. I don't even have to mention witch hunts and inquisitions. We get it wrong. We get it wrong a lot. This doesn't mean that we should be passive against evil. Jesus wasn't passive against evil. He walked right up to dudes possessed by demons. Get out. He commanded them. He went right up to people in the face of debilitating diseases. He healed them. He went right into systems of injustice like the temple system where they had selling of animals right in the court of the Gentiles. That was the one place Gentiles could go to worship. It was covered with animal dung and money changers. That wasn't supposed to happen there. You know, the big issue with that story, by the way, isn't so much that they were selling things in the temple or exchanging money. It was that they were taking the place of the Gentiles. Jesus confronted structures, social structures of evil. He confronted evil directly. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't do those things too. I think we should work for policies that create healthy work environments. I think we should work avidly against human trafficking and slavery. I think we should advocate for, for unborn lives, and I think we darn well better advocate for making sure that those unborn lives have a life worth living once they're born. Amen? It's the whole spectrum. But in the final analysis, this parable is not about what to do with evil. For that I refer you to our sermon series a couple years ago in the Sermon on the Mount. This parable isn't about good versus evil. It's not about heaven and hell, although it names those things as reality. This parable causes us to ask ourselves, am I living as a wheat or a tear? Another way of saying that is, where is my allegiance? Am I a son or a daughter of God? Or does my life reflect the values of the evil one? Another way of saying that, picking up on the beginning of this message is, where is home? Where am I abiding? When you travel overseas, you need a passport, don't you? And on that passport, there is information, your social security number, your photo, your address, and maybe most importantly, what country you are associated with, where your allegiance lies. But one thing that that information can't possibly communicate is your heart. See, to me, my passport represents my heart. And especially, it, I feel it when I go away from my home. And I realize, yeah, I love the stars and stripes, love the blue, but I 
long for home when I'm not there. I don't know if you've experienced that. Have you ever moved away from home? Um, when Corey and I, when I was in the Coast Guard, we got transferred to the Bay Area of California. And I was always a Seattle sports fan. That's what I was. But, man, when I'm in that office, even in a church office, eventually, with all these Niner fans. I went to more Seahawk games. I've only been to two Seahawks games that were both at Candlestick, seeing the Seahawks beat up the Niners. And I went to tons of Mariners games when the Mariners would play Oakland or when they have an interleague play with the Giants. I was, like, way more passionate about being a Seattle sports fan when I was away from home. Your passport talks about your heart, where you really belong, not just information about who you say you belong to. That's what this parable is about. It's not about behavior. You know, lots of people do nice things. Lots of people sit in church every week and they serve, they even preach. I am susceptible to this. They say the right words, but the heart isn't in it. Jesus gives a word of rebuke to this type of thing to the Pharisees. He says, they honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. This parable encourages you and me to check our passports. Pull them out. Look it up. Where does my heart sing? Where is my true home? Is my allegiance with Jesus or does our heart belong um, to someone else? And if you pull out your spiritual passport, do it. Come on, look at it. I want to see hands. You're looking at your spiritual passport and you see there, my home really is with Jesus. It's with the Father. I want to tell you something. Rejoice. Rejoice. Yours is the kingdom of heaven. If you've just pulled out your passport and you see all kinds of conflict on there, and you say, oh, I live on going through the motion street, but my heart is over here. And if that causes you to want to change, rejoice. Jesus said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn about the state of their heart, about the state of this world, for they will be comforted. That is the good news of the gospel. None of this is set in stone until he comes back. There is time right now. Hear the good news. Jesus has sown good seed throughout the world. He's the one who issues the passports. Have you found your true home in him? I'm going to leave you with that. Join me in prayer. Jesus, if we're honest, there are times when we pull out those passports and we know without a doubt that you are home that the father is our home that your we long for your kingdom to come and your will to be done on earth in our lives as it is in heaven there are times lord jesus when we confess our distraction our divided allegiances when we've acted like scandalas and lawless ones Lord, we cast ourselves upon your grace and your mercy. We repent. We thank you that you are the Lord who can give us a new stamp, if you will, that you, uh, that you are the one 
who can right our crooked hearts. And we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would do that work, not only of rescue, but of realignment, of renewal. I pray that you would help us to love you, that you would help us to long for true home in you. I pray for a miracle. And I thank you that you're the God who answers those types of prayers. Amen.